Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Barrett Bowden, lead pastor here at Island Community Church, and we welcome you, those who are here in person with us, and we welcome you, those who are online with us. We are so grateful that you have chosen to worship with us today. Let me pray as we continue in worship together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much, Lord, that your word is living and active, Lord, and able to speak to the depth of our soul. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, just the declaration that you have made, God, that you love us, you're for us, not against us. Lord, you have done everything for us and your son Jesus needed to bring us back to you and to continue the work of restoration and redemption in our life until the day that we get to be with you forever. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the sufficiency of your grace. And, Lord, we acknowledge right now our brokenness, our need. We know we don't have it together. We don't know. We know we cannot do it, and we will never be able to do it, Lord. Everything we need, uh, Lord, has to come outside of ourselves, Lord. And we're so thankful that you supply it. We're so thankful that you give it, Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, that by faith, just by believing in you, Lord, by trusting who you are and what you've done for us and your son Jesus and his life, death, for the forgiveness of our sins and resurrection from the grave for our new life, Jesus, just by believing in you, we can have everything by your free gift. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray you'd meet needs this morning. I pray you speak to our hearts this morning. I pray you'd lead us to love you more and to live a life of love for others, Lord, because of how you loved us. And I just thank you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everybody, I am excited uh, today and a little bit sad, to be honest with you, um, because today we are actually going to be finishing our series in Hebrews. How do y'all feel about that? Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it has been a great fall together, an incredible fall, and we've had the opportunity over the last uh, many months to journey together in the book of Hebrews. And today, our journey comes to an end as we look at Hebrews chapter 13. Um, I hope that you guys have enjoyed this book as much as I have. I really believe it has been such a gift for us together uh, to be in this book, especially in this unique season that we have been in, to have a reminder over and over and over of something bigger than just the circumstance we're going through, something more stable, something more secure, something more satisfying. And over and over, we've been looking at this book and realizing that really our life is meant to be all about Jesus. And truly, he is better in every way. Anybody know the title of the series? If so, you know the theme of the book. Let's say it together. Jesus is better. That's right. Jesus is better. And in fact, um, I hope always as your pastor that you do more than just sit and listen to me uh, week after week on Sundays. But I hope that you with your heart really do desire to know more of God and to know more of his word. It is my earnest prayer that the book of Hebrews not just be a series we go through, but be one of these things that really begins to just uh, help to shape your heart and to help to ground your life. And that you really begin to cherish and treasure um, all that God has for us in his word, especially a book like this. So my hope is that moving on from this series, you might have the opportunity to actually help someone else know the truth of what we've been learning together. And if you can really remember that phrase that we've been talking about again and again, Jesus is better, then you really can help people to know more about the book. And you yourself will have an ability to go back later and look at the book and really understand it as you go through it. So again, I just want to remind you of a few things as we start this morning. Our, our core truth for the day is this, okay? Our core truth for today, as we finish out the series, is this. When we know Jesus, our lives will show Jesus, okay? Pretty simple. When we know Jesus... Our lives will show Jesus. But before we get to the core truth of the, uh, the day and our key passage for the day, which is Hebrews 13, I want to just remind you of the theme of the book. Again, I've said it, we said it together uh, just now, Jesus is better. And really, this will be the last time that you hear this. I know some of you might be tired of me saying this over and over, but I, by golly, hope that you remember this, okay? So uh, here's the thing. Without putting up the screen... How many different times in the book is the word better used? 13 different times, right? How many different times in the book is the word perfect used? 14 is the right answer, yep. And uh, we also know that in the book, uh, it describes Jesus as unchanging. The whole book is about Jesus. And like we just said in the numbers that we just went through, the book is a book designed over and over and over to help you see, compared to anyone or anything else, Jesus truly is better. Your heart is made for Jesus. All 
that you're looking for, all that your heart is hardwired for, is meant to be to found to find fulfillment in the person of Jesus. You are meant to know Jesus. Your heart is meant to be find all of its fulfillment in Jesus. He is better. He is better. So the writer of Hebrews goes, yeah, compare Jesus to anything else and you will find him over and over better. In fact, in fact, you'll find him perfect, which means he's lacking for nothing. Anything else that you ever turn to in life will disappoint you in some way. There will always be uh, something that is lacking, whether it's some material item, whether it's some personal relationship, whether it's some uh, job or sense of success, uh, whatever it is that you might turn to, for security and satisfaction in any other way, is going to come up short. It might give you something for a little bit, but it's going to be found in the end to be just not, not totally fulfilling and not totally faithful, not totally anything of really what your heart craves. And the reality is only one is not lacking for anything, and it's Jesus Christ. God is perfect in every way. The word became flesh. God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. We know the very glory of God by knowing Jesus. And when we yield our hearts and lives to Jesus, we will find that he is faithful and he is perfect. He's all that our hearts and lives need. So he's perfect and he's unchanging. He will never, ever change. Hebrews 13, 8, which we're going to be looking at today in our passage, uh, declares for us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus is better, right? Jesus is better. And he's not only better for our eternal security, and I've been trying to say this week after week, and if you don't get it yet, again, I'm trying to say it one more time. But sometimes those of us, when we think about relationship with Jesus, we're just thinking, oh, I need to be right with God in the end, and so I just need to do something as it relates. I need to be saved or forgiven so that in the end, I'll have a right relationship with God. And yes, Jesus did come so that we might be restored to God and, 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 and that restoration affect our eternal destiny. In other words, it allows us again, once again, the opportunity to, to know that we will be with God forever. There's eternal security in that. But it's, Jesus has been given to us for so much more than just our eternal security. Jesus has been given to us that once again, we might find daily satisfaction. And so when we talk about Jesus is better, yes, we're talking about the big things, the salvation things, but we're also talking about just the everyday things, the moment by moment turning to Jesus and finding in him all that we could want and need and more. Well, we've been going through the book, and I just want to remind you of some of where we've been, okay? So in the structure of the book, we've been talking about these three sections of Hebrews, how the first section speaks to how Jesus is better in his personhood. In the second section, how he's better in his priesthood. And just as a reminder, you may not could read all of this if you're at home or even if you're here, but just as a reminder of kind of where we've been. What we've been saying is, in the first section, and as the writer describes how he's better in his person, Jesus is better than prophets. Because Jesus, and only Jesus, is the full and final revelation of who God is. Jesus is better than angels. He's the central focus of our faith. Jesus is better than Moses. He is the perfect and the only perfect faithful leader. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus and only Jesus is the great and merciful high priest. In his priesthood, he's better forever. His ministry is eternal. He offers a better covenant. His promises never fail. And he has provided a, in his death for the forgiveness of our sins and his suffering on our behalf and his work on the cross and in his death and resurrection, he has provided a better atonement. His blood secures for us eternal redemption. So essentially what we've been seeing is over and over and over, um, Jesus in his person and in his priesthood, he is better. Well, in this last few weeks, we've been talking about this third section, which is all about so in light of who Jesus is, what does this mean for us and how we live our life? And in the last weeks, so what we've been doing is going through these last chapters, starting in chapter 10, and looking at how in this better life, it leads us to a certain kind of response. 
It leads us to holding fast, drawing near, encouraging one another. It leads us to belief, a bold confidence and an absolute trust in Jesus. And it leads us to endurance, perseverance and faith for he, Jesus, he will see us through. So what we've been looking at in all of these chapters is um, how in light of who Jesus is, what does it look like to really live a life by faith in him? Well, today we continue that pursuit as we look at Hebrews chapter 13. And the title of today's message, if you've got something to write with, it's going to be a very practical day. The title of today's message is, in this chapter, a better life, and that life is a life of love. Another way you could describe this life is a life of overflow. If you think about the words of Jesus, um, you know, he got asked one day, you know, what, what are, what is the greatest commandment? He was trying to be tricked, essentially. There's so many commandments, and, you know, how could, how could someone actually name which, which is the greatest of all? And yet he does name it. And he says, you know, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's saying you could, just like what Paul describes in Romans, the whole law is, it could be fulfilled in love. If you, if you had a heart of love for God, complete, overwhelming love for God, and you had a heart of love for others as God has loved you, then you would live a life of purity. You would live a life that fulfills all the commandments. The issue is, what is happening in your heart? God desires for our hearts to be hearts of love. And as we approach the end of Hebrews, essentially, the writer of Hebrews is looking at us and he's going, in light of who Jesus is, what I want to know is, do you love him? Do you love him? Because if you love him, then you will love others like he has loved you and you will live a life, your whole life will be lived as a display of who he is. And in fact, that is our main point for the day. Hopefully you've already written it down, but I'll go and give it to you again. When we know Jesus... Our lives will show Jesus. Hebrews 13 is like a grab bag, okay, of different commandments. So essentially, it's a pretty random. We heard it read just a bit ago, and it's pretty random in its instruction. But if you had to summarize the heart of the passage, it really would be this, you know, if you know Jesus, like if you really love him, and you love others like he has loved you, like your life is going to show that. Like you're going to be living a life of love if you really know him. And so if you know them, you'll show them. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, what I would love for you to do is take your Bible and open it up to Hebrews chapter 13, if you haven't done so already. And I want to start by looking at verse 20 and 21. Because if I had to pick two verses that kind of neatly summarize the whole of this chapter, and really the whole of the desire of the writer in the book, it would be here in the benediction. Now, the benediction at the end of any uh, of the epistles in the New Testament is often a time where, you know, the, the writer will pour out kind of his summary statements. He'll, like, remind you of his thesis statement of the book, essentially. He pours out his heart. If there's one thing I want you to know, here's what I, I want for you, and here's what I'm praying that God would bless and empower you for. And he often will close with some words of greeting to some other people. But here in the benediction, we have the writer coming back one more time in an inspiration of God's spirit and saying to us the whole point of it all. And here's what he says. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. What he's doing here is he's basically pointing back to those first two sections. He says, I want you to just remember our great God. I want you to remember our great Savior. I want you to remember who he is, and I want you to remember what he's done, the great cost that he has paid for you that you might have relationship with him. Now, may this God, may this Savior, Jesus Christ, and he points an arrow essentially, and he describes what it is that he's praying our God, our Savior Jesus, will do in us. In other words, what is the effect that God desires in our lives practically? May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever 
and ever. If you have a set of verses, I know I talked to somebody in the parking lot here yesterday, um, and she was describing to me how she and a discipleship group are actually memorizing uh, big sections of Hebrews every single week. If you don't memorize scripture, I would highly encourage you to do it. It's a wonderful practice. From this chapter, these two verses would be just great treasure for your soul. I would totally encourage you to think about memorizing it. But these verses kind of form a theme verse for our discussion today because the prayer here in Hebrews is that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, would equip us with everything good so that we might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. All the things we're going to be talking about today are aimed at God's equipping us practically by his spirit to do everything good so that we might have the opportunity to actually walk in his will. Again, the whole point of Jesus' coming is that we might know him and treasure him and fall in love with him, but then that take practical effect in our daily life. And that is exactly the benediction that's prayed here in verse 2021. It's almost like a cup. Um, When a cup is filled up, right, you keep filling and filling and filling and filling and filling. What eventually happens is what? It overflows. And essentially what he's saying is, if you have experienced the infilling of Jesus, right, if, if, if he has poured into you who he is and what he's done is he's put his spirit in you, uh, the life that he will cause you to live is a life of overflow. Your life will just spill out all over the place, and, and what spills out will be what he has poured in. Your life will look like, if you know Jesus, we said, you will show Jesus. Your life will will spill out uh, with the very flavor, the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. So we're going to walk through this today. And uh, essentially, there's going to be four things that I want to point out in the text today. So if you're keeping track and you like lists, then we're going to be making a list as we go through uh, Hebrews 13 together. And what we're going to be doing is just walking through it verse by verse and just looking at what is it that Jesus is calling me to? What does it look like? for me to live a life of love, knowing his love and desiring to show his love uh, day to day in the world around me. So, go back to our verse, verse 21. Remember, God wants to equip us with every good thing so that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So what's the first thing? The first thing is this. First thing that God calls us to practically in our life of overflow, a life of love is this. We are called to live with mercy and hospitality. We are called to live with mercy and hospitality. I hope you'll have opportunity to take notes as we go this morning. If you look at your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. This comes from verses 1 through 3. He says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby, some have entertained angels unawares. He goes on and he says, verse 3, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Three basic instructions here under this banner of live a life of mercy and hospitality. Number one, he says, you need to love other Christians. Number two, he says, we need to show hospitality, right? And number three, he describes how we're to minister to those who are in prison. We talked a few weeks back at the end of chapter 10 about what it looks like, how important it is to really love other believers in our life, how we're called Not to live a life of faith in a solo project, but we are truly called to live a life of faith in the family of God. And he continues to remind us of that by saying, let brotherly love continue. And I'll just remind you, you know, it it probably goes without saying, but truly if you do know the love that God has for you, one of the, the greatest evidences of that love, Jesus says in John 13, you know, 
people, other people will know that you are mine, that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. One of the greatest evidences that we could ever give to really knowing the love that God has for us is loving one another. And I know that many of us might think, well, of course, you know, I love other people, but I would ask you to evaluate your life. You know, is your life marked? Would other people look at you and be able to see what Jesus said they ought to see? A, a particular kind of love that stands out from the love that others experience. Love that is evidenced in your life practically among the family of God and beyond. Do you love in that kind of particular way? God says, if you really know me, if you really know my love, then your life will really, will really pour out in love for others. So we gotta love. We gotta love in a brotherly way. And of course, um, I think about chapters like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, one, which we, just, we call sometimes, it's often read at weddings as the love chapter. But one of the, the biggest things you could do if you're seeking to know, like, does my life really reflect brotherly love? Take that chapter. I would just challenge you. Take it over this next few days and read it, not in the context of just what does it look like for a man and a woman to love one another, but what does it look like for us as believers to really live a life that reflects God's love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not boast. It's not seek its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful covers a multitude of sins. Do we really love others in the way that he has loved us? And of course, the Bible says, if we don't love, we have nothing. If we live the most charitable life, the most pious life you could imagine, if we do try to be do-gooders and do such good, but yet in our hearts there is not love, then we have nothing. The greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest, of course, is love. So don't just quickly pass by. I would really ask you to evaluate in your heart, as you look at the instructions of Scripture for what it looks like to live to love in a particular way and the characteristics of God's love evidenced in us, do we really live a life of love? But he goes on and he says, because we've covered that just before, I think one of the interesting verses in the Scripture here is verse 2. Because he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby, some have entertained angels unaware. Now, of course, he's referring to, if you don't know, and you're trying to figure out, what in the world do you entertain angels? Is this, what, is, what is this about? He's referring to the story in Genesis chapter 18, okay? So Abraham in Genesis, after, Genesis chapter 18, if you go back and look at that story, what you'll find is there was an encounter, actually, that Abraham had with some strangers that he just thought were just strangers. He didn't know. But it turned out they were actually messengers of God. And so what he's saying is, look, you got to live your life in such a way that you treat people, even outside of the context of your home, joyfully. That you treat them lovingly. That you show concern for people. That you take their concern and you make it your own concern. In the ancient world, um, hotels were very, very expensive. And typically it was common for people, even just yesterday I was watching The Star. Have y'all ever seen the little movie, The Star? It's a children's movie that was made uh, to kind of retell the Christmas story. It is an amazing movie. Um, I, I used to be on Netflix and they, now they've taken it off. But if you can find it, especially if you have kids, I would totally encourage you to watch it. It is very faithful and it's very Jesus-centered. Um, but even yesterday, I was watching as Mary and Joseph, I was watching that little thing with Caroline, as Mary and Joseph were going around looking for, uh, there was no room in the end, and they were going house to house and asking people to receive them. It was very common in that day for people to take, you know, just concern for other people, even if it wasn't somebody that you knew in your friend group or in your family group, that you would take concern for them. Of course, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gives us, and he is applauded as being a neighbor, even more than the, the Levitical priest or worship leader. You know, he is this Samaritan guy, this outsider that took this Jewish person in as his own. He stopped and he showed care for him. But not just that, but he moved in his care for him and he did for this guy what was needed. He, he used his own resources, putting him in his own donkey and paying for a, a stay and a hospital treatment with his own money. He took this guy in and he showed care and concern for him at sacrifice to himself. 
Hospitality is key to what it looks like uh, for us as Christians to live a life of love. One of the big evidences of one who is really walking with the Lord are pe- is, is just, it's just people who have a radical desire and concern for other people. And it's not just other people who are believers, but it's all kinds of people. People who, uh, you know, we as Christians should be people in our neighborhood that are, like I heard yesterday in the parking lot, taking Christmas gifts around to our neighbors at this time of year. We should be people when we hear about uh, someone who has a death in the neighborhood that we show up and we say, what can we do? Um, That when... You know, there's a situation where a single mom or something, you know, is, is, is really pressed for time and resources that we move in and we try to do what we can to help. In other words, we go out of our way to use all that we have at our disposal to help others, especially in their time of need. And we don't just do that within our circles of comfort and familiarity. We do that even outside of those circles. We have concern for all and we live our life hospitably. In other words, entertainment is based on what do other people think of me. Hospitality is based on how can I be concerned for other people. It's not about putting on a show for people. It's about truly caring about them without pretense, loving them and meeting their needs. And we do this all rooted in our understanding of of God, who he is, how he has loved us, how when we were destitute, kicked on the side of the road, how he came after us, how how when we were ostracized from his family, how he went after us and went to adopt us back in at the greatest cost of himself. We love as he has first loved us. And one of the key markers of a life of those who really know the Lord is hospitality. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality, to be one that is concerned for others and inviting them in. I loved uh, last summer as Lauren was teaching our summer study, she was going through a book uh, by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's one of our favorite books, Michelle and I, we are desirous very much to, to have the opportunity to grow in this area of hospitality, even in our own lives. That's why we believe we have a home, is to invite other people in. It's why we believe God's called us to our neighborhood, is to love the people around us who honestly we feel very much like uh, haven't had much opportunity to know authentic believers and be invited into a relationship with them and also ultimately with Jesus. A uh, gospel comes with a house key is incredibly good, but what I loved as Lauren was uh, training this past summer uh, is she was helping us see, you know, hospitality looks like identifying the people that God has purposely placed in our lives, who we have an opportunity to walk with with this kind of hospitality, and to intentionally build relationships by making space in three ways. And she went on and described this. Creating space in our homes, at our tables, with our time. I love that. Intentionally creating space for others with a heart that God has given us because of his love for us, our love for them, and intentionally identifying people that God has put in our lives and just making space in our homes, at our tables, in other words, with our meals, and with our time. Of course, there's other ways that we can make space, but we know Jesus modeled this, and ultimately, uh, we know that God calls us to this. I would just encourage you, if there is one area that I believe we can work to grow in as a church, especially in this season as others are experiencing need. It would just be showing hospitality and what a wonderful time of year to even do this. But God calls us to do such. And then, of course, we see in verse three, that call to mercy. In other words, the call to compassion and empathy. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In other words, do you look at those who are suffering Look around at our city this year. Uh, Just this week, uh, unemployment numbers were released. Almost 10%, I believe it's 9.8% unemployment here in Memphis, Tennessee currently. Remember those who desire work but have none as though it were you who desired work and have none. Remember those this year in our city who are struggling with the continued injustices of some of the the systems that are at play, the, the racial injustices that we experience here in Memphis. Do you even know what it's like to be pulled over by a police officer just because of the color of your skin? 
Listen to my interview with Steve Johnson from just a few months ago. Listen to our brother describe to us what it's like growing up in a city like Memphis. Just because you're black, suffering in some ways that if you're not black, you just don't understand. In the light of all that's happened this year, remember those who face such sufferings as though it were yours. In other words, you could keep going and going and going. But the reality is we are called to be a people who remember those who are suffering. Remember those who are in a a, a difficult place and were called like Jesus. He says he looked up in the crowds and he had pity upon them. In other words, in his gut and his bowels, he was moved with compassion that he didn't just stand off from a distance and become indifferent in his heart, but rather he was moved. He had a heart of yearning. See, if we know Jesus as our great and merciful high priest, the dispenser of grace and the dispenser of mercy in our time of need, then we will desire to live as a representation of his priesthood to those who are in time of need all around us. And we will be vessels of his grace and vessels of his mercy. We will stand in the gap and help them to know in practical areas of identifying with them, listening to them, caring for them, and desiring to be a voice for them and a help to them. We will be a representation of Jesus in their lives. Are we, in this time, remembering those who are suffering, who are in prison, as though it were even us? You remember the golden rule, so to speak, doing others as you would have them do unto you. We are to empathize with that degree of compassion, for our God has done that for us. And those who are mistreated, because we're all part of the body. If one part suffers, other parts suffer. One of the things I loved about our church in recent weeks, and i got to move on to point two or else this sermon will be about three hours. But one of the things I've loved in recent weeks is many in our church have gotten COVID and we've let people know about it, is there's been an outpouring of love and support. I absolutely am so thankful to so many of you who have loved people so well through their seasons of suffering. Just recently, Tom and Paula said to me, they said, we have never experienced so much love from any church that we've been a part of our whole lives. And they're, I'm not going to pick on them, but they've been around for a little bit. I'm so proud of you, our church family. I truly am. And I want, I pray, the writer of Hebrews is urging us, I pray that our understanding of the love of God grows to such a degree that the way that we choose to live our lives just reeks of the love of God. It just spills over in so many areas of practical concern, both for those in our church and for those outside of our church. And I pray that we will be people who are known by the love that we have for one another because of how he has loved us. Amen? So the first area God calls us to is to live with mercy and hospitality. And the second area that God calls us to is this. We are to live with, a pers- with pursuit of purity. That's a lot of peas right there. I'm stumbling over it. We are to live with a pursuit of purity, okay? With a pursuit of purity. If you look at verse 4 in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. In other words, what he's saying here in this verse is, in our relationships, our covenant relationships of marriage, there ought, we ought to hold marriage as honorable. And we ought to keep our marriages, especially, he calls out here, our sexual relationships, pure. Loyalty and purity. Now, so much of the reason for this is what we know from Ephesians chapter 5. It's the passage that if I ever married you or ever might marry you in the future, I will probably use Ephesians chapter 5 in the wedding sermon. And if you know Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, I hope you'll write it down as a reference. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
I always use the example of marriage as a window showcase. If you go to New York this time of year, what you find is beautiful windows all in front of Saks Fifth uh, Avenue or uh, Lord and Taylor. You'll see these windows outside, and they're meant to just showcase in the most creative and dazzling ways uh, uh, the products that are inside the store. But they do that in Christmas displays that literally you walk up to the window without even going inside. You look at the window, and you go, wow, that must be awesome inside. And it literally just evokes wonder the way that they show the products. And you, you of course, want to go in, and that's how they get you. You know, they're spending money because they want to, to make money, right? But aside from that, marriage is given to us in a way God gave the world marriage, if you think about it, like a window display. And in other words, what he's, he does is he's saying this, the mystery of marriage is that marriage is a reference to Christ and the church. In other words, what marriage is meant to do, the whole reason God designed it, God could have created relationships in a lot of different ways, but God created the institution of marriage, his idea. And he created it for one reason, that we might, through the institution of marriage, have an opportunity to understand a little bit more of what it's like for him to have a relationship with us. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, the whole point of a love relationship of marriage is so that we might, in a deeper way, understand the love that he has for us. And that through the covenant made between a marriage couple that we might have the opportunity to see in a real-life visible way, very practical and tangible way, the covenant that God makes with his people. And therefore, if we understand that our relationship with our spouse is meant to be a reflection of his relationship with us, then how much more should we understand how, how protected that relationship should be? And if we can understand the covenant we commit to with one another is designed to be reflective of the covenant that he's made with us, how much more faithful to that covenant should we be? Marriage is meant to display the glories of Jesus. It's meant to show us who he is and what he's like and how he loves and how he commits and how he serves and how he gives of himself and how he washes and purifies and stays faithful until the end. And if we can understand who he is, if you just look at Hebrews, it just reeks up to this point. It just reeks of the faithfulness of Jesus. Then should that not motivate us to live a life practically where we want so much to pursue purity? You understand? That is the call on our lives. So often we become so self-centered in how we desire to treat relationships in our life. Uh, but God calls us not to be self-centered, but Jesus-centered. And everything that we are, everything we do, all the relationships we have, ought to spin out. It ought to be the overflow of what we know of him. Our motivation to be loyal and pure in marriage is, our, is a motivation to, be, to make much of Jesus. And we're to live pure lives. And this is not just for married people here, okay? This is not just for married people. There are a lot of people here in this room, a lot of people online, and you're not married this morning. You're going, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, if you look at Titus chapter 2, verse 14, again, write these verses down as a reference. It says that Jesus suffered beyond our imagination to purify for himself a people to his own possession. This is all areas of our lives, of heart and life, any area of morality, God calls us to purity. God calls us to seek holiness, to be as he is. First Peter 2, 24, a verse that we love to talk about when it relates to what he's done for us, but it, we often forget about what it, effect it's meant to have on us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We love that verse. I'm so thankful that Jesus took my sin upon himself and he put it to death on the cross. Aren't we thankful for his forgiveness? But do you know why he did it? Yes, his love and grace towards you, but it also says here, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, the whole point of his redemption was not just for eternal security, but for daily satisfaction. The whole point was meant to cause us to turn away from that which we'd given our hearts and lives to and to turn back to Jesus that he might cleanse us from dead works and purify our hearts that we might once again serve the living God. Purity in every area of life and especially in the area of our sexual relationships. And I just would remind you that I, I think, for instance, right now, we are struggling as a culture, we're probably struggling as a church more than I know, in the area of sexual purity. And I just want to remind you that this is so much more than just marriage relationship. Yes, it applies to marriage and marriage relationships. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, 29? 
He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Any act of sexuality outside of the confines of a covenant relationship between man and woman is, according to the Lord, impure. It's not what he wants. It's not what he desires. It's not what reflects the beauty of who he is and what he's done for us. Um, I read this week an article by Jason Thacker, who's a technology guru over at Ethics and Re- uh, Religious Liberty Commission. He's been t- he was talking about this week the cultural upheaval that's happened in COVID-19 and the effects of that on pornography. In Europe, this past month, we learned that in Europe, uh, there has been a usage increase in pornography by 38 to 61 percent, depending on the country, but no less than 38 percent increase. According to Pornhub report, there have been more than 18.5 million searches within its site just on the phrase corona. People looking for things just related to the time that we're in. And the problem is with pornography, not just that it's happening right now in COVID, but it happens all the time, but it exacerbates a really deep and disturbing trend. And that is it separates sexual desires from relational wholeness, and it also separates sexual desires from marital fidelity. And both of those problems are wreaking havoc in hearts and lives and often without us even knowing. And I would just say, there's so much more I I could say, but the reality is God has made our hearts for himself. And he's designed us to live sexually in a certain way. And it's not only for his glory, but it's also for our good. And we need to believe him And we need to be people who pursue him, who earnestly desire to live a life of of purity in our minds, purity in our hearts, and purity in our actions. And I would just say, in light of who you know him to be, how pure his love is, how faithful his covenant is, I would just ask you, are there areas of life where you just need to say, oh God, would would you purify me? Would you help me to to think more of you than of myself? And would you help me in the way that I think, in the way that I feel, in the way that I live to really exhibit who you are and how you love? Would I know that you're better in every way? So we are to live with a pursuit of purity. This is for all of us. Yes, for those who are married, but also for those who are not. And I would just challenge you to connect who Jesus is in the early part of Hebrews to who God calls you to be and to understand that the fight for purity is a fight for joy because God has promised greater joy than any porn website or any uh, unfaithful relationship could ever provide. God promises greater joy. So let your passion for purity be a passion for Jesus. Amen? Number three, the third area that God calls us to in knowing Jesus and showing Jesus. We've talked about living with mercy and hospitality. We've talked about living with the pursuit of purity. And now here we're going to talk about what it looks like to live with trust and generosity. God calls us to live with trust and generosity. In verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 13, what we read is this. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he said, I'll never leave you, forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And there's another verse I want to point your attention to. If you skip down. And you go to verse 16. There's another verse that's directly connected to this theme, and I wanted you to, to see it here in context. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Don't neglect to do good and to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So here... <laughs> The Bible is helping us to connect all these practical areas of life, right? You can't just say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and yet you go out and live selfishly, and you never give. You just hoard all your money, and you're anxious, and you store up 
just like everybody else does, putting a lot of stock in what you can collect for yourself, that find more security in what you have building up for you for retirement than in just trusting God. You, you can't say that you love Jesus and then disconnect it from all these practical areas of life, how you use your house, how you use your time, how you use your bed, now how you use your checking account, right? All of this is just so practical. And what he says here is, is very important. Keep your life free from the love of money. That's literally covetousness, right? The Bible teaches that money is not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. It's not money. Nothing is wrong with money. What's wrong is when our hearts get attached to money. What's wrong is when we become lovers of money. Covetousness can apply to anything, but it certainly can apply to money. And essentially reflects a constant desire for more. And here's what he's, t- what he's saying here. If you look at 5 and 6, be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, contentment, if you didn't know this already, here's a newsflash. Contentment can never come from material things. You will never find contentment in more money, more bank accounts, more stocks, more cars, more houses. If you just look at celebrity culture, what we see is, my word, they have everything, and yet they keep turning to other things. They end up in drug cycles or in uh, just deep places of despair, uh, just acting out in crazy ways. And we go, how could you have so much and yet be so foolish? And it's because that stuff they have does not bring contentment. Only God brings contentment. And the reality is the Bible teaches us when we have God, that's all we need. Material things will, can be broken down, they can be destroyed, they can be taken away. Start market crash can come and remove it. Job can be lost and it can be gone. But the reality is, here he teaches us a quote from Psalm 118.6. He says, but God is not like that. He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. In other words, if we know that, that God is our helper, right, then we do not need to put our trust in temporary things. We can keep our life free from the love of money because we know money's not where it's at. We can be content with what we have in others. We don't need more because we know that even if we had more, that doesn't bring contentment. Literally, the direction here is put your trust in God because he will never fail you and he will make you happy always. If you know Jesus to be these things, then live, live with your trust in him and not, and not money. And then if you connect it to verse 16, it's not just what's happening in your heart, but if you truly trust God with your resources, with your security, with with what you have, and you're looking in for contentment, it will always spill over in a life of generosity. And this generosity is pleasing to God. Don't neglect to, to do good and to share to share what you have. I wrote a letter to our church members. I think it was two weeks ago now. You probably should have gotten in the mail. And if you didn't get in the mail, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. And if you become part of our church, you might get on our mailing list. But one of the things I said in the, uh, the letter, it was an update on our finances, but I said this in the letter. There's a paragraph and I read it. I said, I want to encourage you to remember why we give. I know that most of us have felt stress and anxiety around money this year, myself included. However, In seasons of insecurity like the one that we're in, we get the opportunity to show greater trust and security in God by continuing to be faithful in our giving and generosity. By giving, we get the opportunity to say, my security is in you, God. Giving in difficult seasons, faithful giving in difficult seasons, actually works to increase our trust and our treasure in Jesus. Jesus himself implores us not to store up wealth, thinking that it will bring greater security, but rather to give generously. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Additionally, God has promised that he will bless and provide for those who joyfully trust and obey him. Right now, even in this challenging season of 2020, I wrote, we have an opportunity to see God satisfy and provide as we give. The encouragement here of Hebrews is if you know Jesus to be so wonderful, then look to him to be your satisfaction and look to him to be your daily security. You've got to fight a fight of faith right now in the middle of COVID with the uncertainties that are out there. 
with what you have? Do you, do you store up for winter? Do you stop giving in order to, to have what you need later on? Or do you trust God that he says give? And by giving, he, he knows what he's doing. He's instructing you to give. He knows what he's doing. He's asking you to, in a practical way, put your confidence in him more than in your paycheck. With the first portion of what you have, every time you receive, we're called to say, God, I trust you. I know it comes from you, and I know ultimately my life depends on you. It doesn't depend on this money, so I'm taking the first tenth and I'm giving it to you. That expresses trust in God, and it puts your heart his direction, not money's direction. And that is really good, and it also is really God-glorifying. And more than that even, it is allowed to be shared and to meet needs that just reek of the fragrance of Christ. So I would encourage you not to divorce your love for Christ with how you spend money. And understand that part of God's call on us to live a life of love for him and love for others is to put our trust and satisfaction in him to the degree that we're free. We're free. We don't need more. We have all we need in God, and we're free to love with what we have for the glory of Christ and the good of our own souls. Amen? Number four. This is the last thing. As we close this morning, I want to encourage us to look at the end of this passage because the end of the passage describes, verse 7 and 19, that we are to live with honor and humility. We've talked about mercy and hospitality. We've talked about the pursuit of purity, trust and generosity. And now the writer turns his attention to honor and humility. And we do this as we close this morning. If we look at verse 7, and we take it all the way toward the end of the passage. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, here it is, the verse I've been quoting every week in the introduction. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. To uh, excuse me, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is bought, brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He encourages us here, if you go back to the fourth point, to live a life of honor and humility. The reason I say honor here is he says in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, it's kind of a, a rehash of what the encouragement was in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? Let us keep our own eyes on Jesus, running the race that is marked out for us with our eyes on him, right? Same thing here. He says, remember those who have come before you in faith and remember that the Savior that they knew, that they loved with all their heart, that they trusted and that they have a testimony now, he will see you through. Remember the outcome of their faith. The, the same Savior they loved, trusted, and followed is the same Savior that today calls you to do the same. You are to live a life of honor. Honor him in all things and let your lips continue to testify to his name. Very much in view and here in the end of Hebrews 13 is that he knows that by calling you to continue to bear witness to Christ, there will be suffering. And yet that suffering 
should not make us shy away from public just attachment to Christ, whether it's with our lips or, or just the way that we live our life. We should remember, he says, we should remember to continually offer up a sacrifice of, of praise to God. And he says that, remember Jesus, he went outside the camp and he bore the reproach, he endured it. And remember that we don't live for here and now. We, we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. In other words, the life that we live now is not a life designed to, with our aim being our own comfort. You know, we live for God and we live for what God has called us to and the bigger things. And we know that there is more to come. We live storing up treasure in heaven. We live with our eyes on him. And we live not not seeking comfort, but being willing to count the cost in order to identify with him, make much of him, and in the end, be forever with him. That is a life of honor. It honors those who won us to Christ and who discipled us and poured into us, but more importantly, it honors Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. If Jesus did not, he, he didn't act selfishly, when it came to what you needed, namely salvation, forgiveness, redemption into a relationship with God, if Jesus did not act selfishly, remember Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held onto. He had so much and yet he didn't hold onto it all, but he emptied himself, Philippians 2 says, taking on the form of a servant and not just any servant, he took on the form of a servant and ended up in a place of death and not just any death, death on a cross. If he loved you and gave himself for you, how much more in your life of love for him should you be willing to give yourself for him? That is a life that honors Jesus. And live a life of humility. He says here in verse 17 something that is hard for us probably to swallow in our day, but it is the repeated instruction of Scripture all over the place. He says here, he calls us to submit to our leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those whom you have to give an account. In other words, your pastors, your spiritual leaders are overseeing your soul. And they're going to be held accountable one day, but in the presence of God for you. Because of how much desire they have for you and how they're literally praying and laboring over your soul, you need to respond and submit yourself to them. He says, let them lead you with joy and not grumbling. That's no advantage to you if they grumble. In other words, the call in our life is a call for humility. And I know that this kind of commitment often offends. God knows that more than I know that. It's not my instruction. It's God's instruction. Over and 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 over in the New Testament and all throughout the Bible, we are told that we need to be in a formal relationship with a local church. And ultimately, the, the reason for that is that we have to learn submission to authority. This is totally countercultural because we live in a day today that literally everyone wants to be and thinks that they are their own authority. We want no higher authority than ourselves. We get to decide everything about our lives. And if you tell me something I don't like, then I will just take my stuff and I will leave you. That works in friendships. That works in, I mean, look at the mask mandates for crying out loud. Look at all the people rebelling. We don't want authority. It works in church. And the reality is our culture is skeptical of authority. Mark Dever talks about this in his book, Compelling Community. We're skeptical of authority. We, want to, we don't want other people to tell us how we should live our lives. But the reality is this skepticism of authority is not good, and it's really not of God. It comes from the lie that was originally planted in Eve's mind in the garden by the serpent. That God cannot love us and say no to us simultaneously. Therefore, affection necessarily implies approval. If I love you, then I will approve of you. That's one of the original lies. And what happens is, 
we begin to think that if God loves us, then he's never gonna say no. And if that other people in our life love us, then they're never gonna say no. And our pastors love us, they're never gonna confront us. When confrontation happens in our lives, we go, well, that means that you're not for me and I'm going somewhere else. And by doing so, we become our own authority. And by not submitting to other people in our life that God has called us to be submitted to, in other words, what we're doing is actually not just rebelling against them, we're rebelling against God. God has put other people in our lives to teach us a life of humility, a life of submission, a life of surrender. And ultimately, it's to learn surrender and submission to God. It's not about submitting to other people. It's about learning to submit to him, trusting him enough to trust others when they call you to accountability and repentance. God has called us to be humble in the way that we live our life. The whole instruction here at the end, and there's a call to leaders too, okay? Leaders are accountable before God. Leaders must act honorably. Leaders must have a clear conscience. Leaders must act in love for the people that they're asking them to, to, uh, to trust them and to follow them and submit to them. So it works both ways, but in both the leaders and those who are called to follow, there is a call to live a life where we are not saying that we're the center of everything, that we're our own authority, but if you know Jesus, then you're going, he's everything. And I'm gonna live my life not according to what I think or want. I'm gonna live my life according to him and I'm gonna live my life humble and surrendered before him and others that he has put in my life for my good. Does that make sense? This is the call upon us.